0: Welcome to the Cineco Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo. Jeremy Goldcorn is on his way to New York on business this week, so we've asked David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing, to join us as co-host this week. How are you, David? Very good. Thanks, Kaiser. Um, so back in 2000, I did a week-long bike ride along the Western Front uh, in Belgium, starting in Ypres, and uh, anyway, the woman that I was with, on that bike trip was also Chinese American and like me uh, she had a very keen interest in World War One. but we weren't really prepared for the one question we kept getting asked every, every battlefield we'd stop at which was are you here to see the Chinese? I mean I was dimly aware uh, you know of course we'd all read in our history classes about how there was this uh, work study program uh, that Deng Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai had been a part of later on but and I, I was aware that there had been uh, you know labor corps sent but I wasn't aware I was gobsmacked at the size of it when I happened to read it in a, a wonderful new book uh, by Mark O'Neill uh, called The Chinese Labor Corps and uh we're very happy today to welcome the author of that book, Mark O'Neill. And Mark is a uh, veteran reporter. He wrote for Reuters for, for 13 years and for the South China Morning Post for nine. Uh, and today he teaches, lectures, uh, and, uh, and is, of course, a prolific author. Very, very warm welcome to the show, Well, Mark. thank
1: you very much, because I'm delighted to come here and have the chance to talk about the book.
0: So um, I guess let's start with what initially inspired you to to write this. I imagine it must have had something to do with your grandfather. Yes. Well, I first
1: wrote uh, the biography of grandfather, and uh, he spent two years with the labor corps. He was drafted from Manchuria together with a lot of other missionaries, doctors from China, uh, to look after the Chinese men. And he wrote about it to some extent in his diaries and his letters, but
2: not very much. Kaiser, for, the, for, the, for viewers who are—viewers, <laughs> what is this, the TV show? Waved. <laughs> for, for listeners who, like me, didn't really know much about this, you know, I didn't know much about it, maybe you better start from scratch yeah, so, yeah, and, let's, let's... and say, what you mean by the Chinese Labor Corps? Because I guarantee you some people won't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, 94,400
0: for the British Army, and then another, God, um, how many was it for for, for 40,000 40, for, for Army. For, I mean, that's an awful lot of people, over 130,000 people altogether—
1: Well, in 1916, if you can imagine, the war had been going on for two years. All the countries had suffered devastating losses, uh, especially France. And so there was a severe shortage of manpower, not only to fight, but to do all the things necessary behind the lines to support the troops. And the French and the British armies had already enlisted uh, in, in thousands of people from their colonies in Africa and Asia. Mm-hmm. So uh, from
0: South Africa
1: and from Egypt, uh, Egypt Fiji, Egypt. India to come. Mm-hmm. But there still was, wasn't enough. So on the table, there was an offer from the Chinese government to provide men. So in 1916, it was taken up first by the French and then by the British. So mm-hmm. in total, it's 135,000 that were taken from uh, Shandong and across the Pacific Ocean to Canada, through Canada, across the Atlantic, and
0: then to France and Belgium. Being part Shandong-ren myself, um, I I read with interest the reason why they they chose the people from Shandong rather than than people from uh, Guangzhou or from anywhere south of the Yangtze.
1: Well, for the British, of course, it would have been easier to pick people from Guangdong because they had a big colony in Hong Kong. That's right. But they thought they were too small and not physically strong enough. And the weather in northern France and Belgium is very harsh, especially the, the winter. Kaiser, look at yourself. I mean, you're a very <laughs> strong, tough guy, so you can endure the winter and continue to work well. So
0: that was the reason they chose Kaiser us. as a coolie. I can imagine <laughs> yeah, that. I, yeah, yeah. I can't. Um, <laughs> Uh, But actually, the offer, though, predates 1916, though. Let's take it back to the outbreak of the war itself and what China was hoping to gain uh, from participating uh, on the side of the Allies. Well, when the war broke out, China's initial
1: position was that we must be absolutely neutral because China didn't want the war to spread to China, which it could easily have done Mm -hmm. because the British and the French and the Germans and the Austrians could have fought from their concessions within China. So that was China's initial position. But there was an advisor to the president called Liang Shiqi. Mm -hmm. And he believed, this is, we're speaking about autumn of 1914, Mm -hmm. very early. He believed that the allied side would win. So he said, we've got to do something to ally ourselves with Britain, France, and Russia so that when the war is over, we'll be on the right side and we can gain some benefits. (laughs) And particularly what he wanted was to abolish the foreign concessions in China, Yes,
0: Indeed. abolish
1: right. the privileges for foreigners and uh, get either a reduction or an abolition of the Boxer in Indemnity, mm-hmm. which was this enormous payment that China was having to make.
0: Right, which was still something like uh, $36 billion in modern terms, right? Yes, I mean, and it was, it was, to, an was to be paid huge. between
1: 1900 and 1939. Mm-hmm. So this was the idea of Mr. Liang. So he, he uh, sold this idea to the president and they agreed. Yuan Shikai at the time. So yeah. the, the offer was on the table. We'll 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 send you men, either as soldiers or as workers. Now the British and the French armies considered the Chinese not to be good soldiers, so they weren't interested in that. Mm-hmm. And they Br- Britain was an ally of Japan, and Japan opposed China's active participation in the war because they didn't want China
0: to be on the victor's side at the end. Right, but they by- had their they had well, of course, their own concessions in in you know. Dalian, for example. But also they had their eye on German territories. Well,
1: they didn't wait. They declared war on Germany very, very quickly. They gave the Germans an ultimatum to give up the Shandong concession. Germany didn't give it up. So the Japanese, with British help, invaded the concession
0: and conquered it. It's a little piece of history that probably not many people are aware of.
1: No. And by November 1914, the Japanese occupied the, the concession. So, yeah, China also wanted that back. So by 1916, the losses in Europe were so enormous that France first and then Britain agreed and they started the recruitment.
0: So how did Germany react when when, when they started conscripting people, uh, especially when the French started to conscript Chinese uh, laborers? What was the German reaction? Well, officially
1: they protested. They said, you are neutral in the war. You cannot supply people. It's like supplying a soldier. That's what they said. It's Mm -hmm, like supplying mm -hmm. a soldier. Then on the ground, they did a lot of uh, publicity. They handed out leaflets outside the recruiting station saying the British and the French are deceiving you. You will be on the front line. You will be killed by uh, bombs, by artillery. Uh, It's extremely dangerous. They're saying you will not take part in the war, but you will. You're being deceived. Don't go.
0: As it turns out? (laughs) <laughs> that's exactly what happened in that, the case is of true, that is true that is so. true but uh, both
1: the british and the the French used this uh, uh, pretense that it wasn't the government recruitment they both had these private companies which hired the people right. but actually it was government recruitment with the the agreement of the chinese
0: government hmm. um Let's talk about the, um, um, the sinking of the Athos in, in, in February of, of, of 1917. Um, Germany actually sent U-boats uh, after transport ships they knew were carrying uh, corvée laborers. Is that correct? Well, not just corvée
1: laborer. In, Jan- in 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 January of that year, the German German government announced we will have warfare on Allied shipping. Mm-hmm. So whether it's from America or in the Mediterranean, right. they
0: would attack it. So the Lusitania, right uh,
1: Yes, so it was a it, it was a dreadful mistake. I mean, they could have sunk the British ships, but the, <laughs> by uh, uh, shooting that ship, they brought America into the war. Fortunately, the
2: Aramis and the uh, Porthos were left. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for this reason, they had to change the route. Then, uh, to, yes. To so the, the front, quickest the route,
1: front. of course, is through Indian Ocean, Suez Canal, Mediterranean, and then you arrive in Marseille. That would right. be the quickest route. But after the sinking of the Athos they changed the route and it became much longer and it had to go over the Pacific through Canada across the Atlantic and then into... Like over, the and front. over
2: three months, uh, which is an arduous uh, trip. Right, crossing mm. two oceans Cro- like, and, and a continent. You know, one of the great things about your book, actually, is some of these vivid details. I mean, you can get caught up in the macro aspects, but, I mean, can you talk a little bit about uh, the the process they had to go through where they were, they were uh, you know, shaved and... Uh, uh, deloused and then the the packed into the i mean it was very disturbing actually because they were packed into these ships almost like it was reminiscent of the of the slave trade right. from from west africa and then once they got in canada they were shipped across in uh cattle cars, in, in cattle cars, sure. and they were not allowed to even get out of the. So again, it was reminiscent of the of the Holocaust. Of Blackened the, windows. The, uh, yes, I mean this. Can you you know talk a little bit about well, this? Uh, and, and also, by the way, these are people who sp- speak uh, Shandong dialect, different dialects, with a few ragtag whatever missionaries who spoke. You know, people that didn't have good Chinese were in charge of explaining to them what was happening. Your it's grandfather a, accepted. Your grandmother accepted. Yeah.
1: Well, you see. Britain and France and Canada didn't want Germany to know what they were doing. And the Canadian government didn't want the Canadian population to know what they were doing.
0: They were already chafing
2: because of Chinese immigration. Yes, the because border.
1: the Canadian population was anti-immigration by Chinese.
2: There, there were already a significant number of Chinese there as immigrants, which was surprised surprise to me too, even at that time. But, but there they didn't want a, any more laborers there.
1: There right? was a head tax. There was a significant head tax on any Chinese migrants. So what the Canadians wanted to do was as if it, it, it never happened. You see, they didn't want the, their people to know that it happened. So they had very severe censorship. No Canadian media could speak about these people. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, if you can imagine it, they arrive on the West Coast and they leave from the East Coast without anybody knowing and without anything happening. <laughs> so this, as you've already mentioned, calls for very extreme measures. You have to detain them... You have to take them secretly from the, the the port to the train station. You have to put them in 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 carriages with blackened windows and across Canada they couldn 't get out anywhere. they had to stu- be stuck in their carriages and the The guards guarding them couldn 't speak about what they were doing and uh, as you say, the conditions for the men were very severe and you 're quite right I mean they were not some- treated they were not treated as Canadians would have tr- treated white people. No,
0: mm-hmm. and once they arrived in Europe, conditions weren't altogether much better, right? i mean, nominally they were paid uh, the same, uh, a commensurate wage as a, a Frenchman or a, 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 a Brit would have been paid, but uh, working conditions were were, were were pretty awful. I mean, the kinds <laughs> of things that they had them doing: clearing ordnance, taking away dead animals, and digging. Well, the the, the
1: the ones working for the French were more fortunate because. Initially, they went to work in factories. So these factories were not near the front line. So they would be working in a munitions factory, a steel factory, a chemical factory. So they lived in a dormitory. Um, Conditions were not luxurious, but it was safe. And they were getting paid more than they would be paid in China. Mm -hmm. But the British men, they were all in camps in northern France near the front line. So for them, life was much more dangerous. And these people were under uh, military discipline. Mm -hmm. And so they left their camps in the morning. They went to the place where they were working. They were brought back in the evening under military escort. And then they couldn't leave the place where they were. So their life was very restrictive.
2: I was intrigued uh, reading a a reference to a book by Daryl Klein. The title is With the Chinks. Right. And I thought, Really, I've got to get a, a copy of this book, and sure enough, it's on Kindle, which I downloaded,
0: oh, and gosh. on
2: my Kindle right now. And if you don't mind, let me read just a couple passages because it gives an insight into. This is a, I guess, a Brit who was with the Chinese Labor Corps, mm-hmm. and he's talking about the treatment of the of the coolies, as he it's calls them. So Daryl Klein. So he was a a Yid. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to be politically correct about it. Yes, but here's 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 his. Uh, it's a diary. He he wrote a diary about his uh, time with the, uh, treating the, the coolies as he calls them. Here's one, just one entry. He said, "Spent the morning overseeing certain functions of the sausage machine," and he by that he means the the, the process of of cleaning up the coolies for for transport across the ocean. He says, "Number one, the hair cutting function. Number two, the cleansing function." And he says. These are midway functions of a process which turns an ordinary, uninviting, workaday coolie into a clean, well-clothed, and smartly active human being. An astonishing practice which is doing a great good for a corner of China. If the whole nation, male and female, could pass through this sausage machine, it would make the people anew. And also a very interesting little tidbit, uh, talking about the cutting of the hair. He says, of the two functions above mentioned, I was most interested in the barbers. Being northerners, these coolies wear a queue, which rather strangely I thought they did not in- to the least... Uh, they, they did not in the least object to losing queue after queue fell without a murmur from the victims a few appeared regretful to lose so intimate a thing picking it up after it had been sheared and handling it fondly and examining the careful plates did did you know
0: that people
2: still had queues in 1916 well, yes, I, I technically I didn't have to have them after nineteen eleven or twelve, well, 12 right? 12, 12. But evidently, a lot of people kept them, uh, and only when Puyi actually cut his off for some reason, they felt it was safe to cut theirs off. Well, so, evidently, there were people. Yes, that's, that's an interesting, I very see people fascinating. Still today,
0: cutting cues all the time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, I mean, I just thought this was very interesting. This is the attitude of this person. Well, Darryl this Klein. book
1: is, as it were, the text for what the average British soldier thought. Of the Chinese. So when we yes. read it today, it's extremely non-PC. But actually, in terms of history, it's very valuable because it's what the majority of the soldiers who handled the workers in China, in Canada, or in northern France would have thought and would have, would have said. Now, if you, we spoke to a grandfather or those kind of people, of course, their answer would be quite different. But they were a small minority. Yeah. Right. So I think that the book is very good because it gives you a feeling of how they would be treated and regarded by the average by British ordinary soldier. Soldier, Yeah,
2: that's precisely right? what's fascinating about mm. it. Um, there
0: were other sources that you drew on as well um, that were contemporary sources or sources that were, were later, um, including a few Chinese books uh, written in 2009 and 2010 interviews. Of, of, of descendants of them, of, of many of, of the, the Chinese labor corps. Um, what, what were some of the other ways that you went about reporting this, that you, you did your research?
1: Well, um, uh, first I want to mention a, a scholar in Shandong called Zheng Yan. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who went to the villages and interviewed descendants of the the workers. He's at
0: Shandong right? Yes. Yeah.
1: And he's just, he yesterday sent me an email saying he's got a doctorate at Chinese University in Hong Kong. So he's going to be moving there, and I'm very happy for him. Because oh, this is a very good piece of research work, which he did, which, uh, uh, I mean, I couldn't do it, uh, you know, to go to, to a large number of villages in, in Shandong, find the, the descendants, and mm, then yeah. uh, get them to talk to me. So that was a very useful piece of, uh, of research. Uh, then um, in Ypres, there's an excellent museum, Called in Flanders Field. I've been there. Yes, it's yes. a beautiful. It's museum, excellent, and they were extremely helpful, and they gave me a lot of materials, um, uh, which which I've I've used in the book. Um, uh, David, have you been to that museum?
0: It's no. it's really worth going no. to. There's there's one. I mean, the, some dramatic stuff. Like uh, you you go uh, and th- there's this whole section on gas, and you have. Read in a sort of contemporary voice, Wilfred Owen's famous poem, oh, you know'll uh, right. say it the Coromest. Mm. uh it's it's a great museum this one I was well, I'd like to make
1: a plug for that museum. I think if people are interested in World War one and they have the opportunity to go to Flanders, uh, you know during this year, they should go there. I think they will have
0: a very instructive visit absolutely. Ypres is quite close to Lille, mm. uh, and so I mean it's a very quick it's maybe two hours from paris by by train, so it's very, very worth visiting. Um, l- let me uh, go on. I mean, uh, t- talk to me about more of the research that you were able to do. So, you, 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 you spoke, you actually visited uh, museums in and, and cemeteries as well?
1: Uh, no, I'm afraid I, I, I should have visited the cemeteries, but our time in France was not enough. Oh, I see. But what we did do was uh, we went in Paris to try to find the descendants of those who stayed behind. Mm. And that's not so difficult. And as you know, the the Chinese uh, community in France now is very large. And in Paris, it's extremely significant. And they have a lot of businesses and they have associations. So we went to see them. And what they said was that the French government was very... um, uh, uh, declined to acknowledge what the Chinese did for for decades. Mm. And they were angry about that. So only in recent years... Has there been a, uh, a plaque put up in a park? There's a plaque on the side of an N- NSCF building. And now there is a ceremony every Qingming in the main Chinese cemetery in, in northern France. Qingming
0: where, is grave-sweeping festival. Mm-hmm. In where in the
1: Chinese ambassador will <laughs> attend, the French military will attend, the French government will attend. But I'm afraid to say, case. I'm sure you hear this from many speakers, but that's because China now is a very big country with a huge foreign exchange reserves. I mean, it's a... Right. You exactly. Know. So the reason France has changed the attitude is not because it's recognized the contribution of the workers. It's because, like everybody else, they want to carry favor with China. Hmm. But at least it, this is the proper recognition that's now been given.
0: The, uh, the workers themselves... Uh, even at the time, certainly did not feel that their contribution was being recognized and, in fact, felt that working conditions were so extreme that they had been sold essentially a false mm. bill of goods, that they were being exposed to very, very dangerous working conditions, and regular bombings from the Germans working much closer to the front lines, especially in the CLC. And there were quite a number of, of, of incidents of uprising. They were not docile. They they did not just sort of take this lying down. Can you talk a little bit about some of of, of the... The, uh, the mutinies, if you would. I mean, actually, I think you do use the word mutiny.
1: Yes, uh, I think it's the appropriate word. I mean, I think the first thing we should say is that suddenly the British Army and the French Army had to manage this huge number of people. Now, how many of the French or the, the British officers could speak Chinese? Well, less than 0.1%. Right. So they had to draft in these uh, people like Grandfather, and they also drafted in a lot of Chinese students, from America or from Europe to come and help. But still, the number is very, very small. So I think there will be a huge amount of uh, misunderstanding on both sides. So I'm sure many incidents occurred not because there was really a problem but because the Chinese didn't understand what he was being told to or the, the, the British or the French officer didn't understand, what he was, uh, didn't understand what he was being told. And a very small incident could easily flare and the British and the French soldiers are armed and they have to keep a military discipline. It, just the, to give you a very silly example, uh, 10,000 were lent to the American army and an American officer said one morning, let's go. So, of course, the workers heard go, go. and they <laughs> thought they were being called dogs. So they said, we're not, we're not going. I mean, that's a
0: very sort of stupid example, but that just shows you from such a simple sure. thing. Sure. I've seen a lot of um, African-Americans come here to, to, to China, and I was in a pool hall one night with a, a friend of mine named uh, Tim Davis, who used to play football for the New York Jets and kept hearing people using the regular old Chinese pause word nigger. That's right nigger,
1: So <laughs> So yes uh, Kazi you've already identified the main causes I mean they were told they would not Be involved in the war mm-hmm. But they found that they were in camps that were subject To G- German bombing or German artillery fire Or they had to handle munitions uh, And uh, These led to Protests and they said this is not fair And they ran away um, uh, there were also disputes between them and other foreign workers—Algerians, or uh, South Africans, or Indians—and uh, the, these these could also break into violence.
0: They weren't um, always antagon weren't always antagonistic relations. One one interesting thing that I, I realized is that there were actually quite a number of marriages between Chinese men working there in France, uh, especially after the war and uh, And women then French women, of course, there were quite a
2: few war widows and um, yeah it was that English, was a right? statistic I thought was astounding that, that you said the war killed one point seven million people which and virtually all of the men of marriageable age right. and so here you had uh Chinese workers between the age of what twenty and twenty and twenty twenty maybe, yeah. twenty and maybe younger than that who were young and healthy and these French women and they worked together and they began to, uh, you know, romances sparked and sometimes babies resulted and the French government didn't know what to do about that, right? Well, the, 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 the ones under the British army,
1: they were held in these camps, so they weren't allowed out. Right. But the ones who were working for the French, especially those who were not in the camps but working in the factories, their life was much easier. So they were living in dormitories near the factories. And they had Sunday off. And, yes, yeah. and they could go to the local town. And uh, in the factory, there would be very few French men because they were all in the army. So their colleagues in the factories would, would include many French women. And as you mentioned, uh, the French men were, were killed or they came back from the war, but they were handicapped or they were t- traumatized psychologically. And uh, so f- for for a French woman, what was the alternative? Mm. So, yes, there were... We shouldn't say hundreds of romances, but there were many romances, and some of them led to marriages. But as you mentioned, the official attitude was against it because the French government, like the British government, was racist, and they didn't want mixed-race children. And the French men were also against it because uh, sort of, why are we fighting the war? I mean, (laughs) we're fighting the war uh, in order to give our women to the the foreigners. Um, So... There were several cases where uh, the, the Chinese man and, and the French woman were going to marry, and then the, the French government shipped the man to, to, to Marseille to put him on a boat, and then he, he escaped and came back. And this one man, this happened three times, but he managed to escape and got married, and it, they had a regular marriage after that.
0: Another incident where a, a woman tried to stow away on a vessel, right, and wrapped in a blanket, and she was discovered and then sent home, mm-hmm. and they never saw each other again.
1: Yes. No, now, nice. the French women who came to China, I, I'm afraid it's not a happy ending because, well, I think you, I mean, right. you're,
0: you're, in, you're in China,
1: you'll understand. But they, they then moved not to, to urban China, but to rural China. Right. And can you imagine now? Right, where <laughs> a big nose white woman arrives in a Shandong village? What would the parents of the man think? What would the brothers and sisters? Even what nowadays, that
2: could... w- wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so, much less back then. These days, so.
1: I, I, I think those didn't work, and the women, after a certain amount of time, had to go back to France.
0: For me, one of the most interesting aspects of the book was the scu- discussion of the, the work-study movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't know them. There were some real luminaries involved in it. Um, you introduce us to a fascinating character by the name of Li Shizung um i i don't know i don't know know the characters i, I only see the p in front of me uh he was in paris from 1902 uh he was apparently a biologist who studied at the pasteur institute and uh he got very much involved. he was a tongmenhui member uh you know which was a progenitor of the guomindang uh, presumably involved in, in radical politics before the, the 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 xinhai revolution and then afterward uh during the war apparently was was quite involved in in helping to educate uh, a lot of the, the workers who would come over in in pushing literacy he 's a fascinating character. How did you stumble hot, hot yeah, on yeah I mean, you know?
1: I think th- these Chinese intellectuals are really the most inspiring characters in the book yeah, I thought so too because they they for them, the workers really meant a great deal. This man, Mr. Lee, he was an idealist. he wanted to reform and change china mm-hmm. so He thought that to do that, we must cure Chinese of uh, opium, drinking, and gambling. He said, as long as they have these three curses, China will never advance. So he saw the the workers in France as like a perfect opportunity Mm. to to explain his causes because these people were detached from their communities. They were away from home. They were a a bit of a loss. And uh, he wanted to preach to them. So the French government asked him to set up schools. So he set up schools. They asked him to, to publish a magazine, which he did, and uh, to spread his ideals and to raise the quality of the Chinese workers. So he and the people working with him, they greatly helped them because they helped them to learn to read they helped them to understand what, what was going on in Europe, why, what, what the war was about. It meant that when they came back, they, they were much improved men from when they had left. So I think Mr. Li is a very
2: inspiring figure.
0: Another familiar name popped up when, when I was reading this, and I think David and I are both fans
2: of Lin Yutang. Li Yutang I, yeah, Li Yutang uh, sort of uh, left his doctorate degree yeah, uh, prematurely it anyway, to, right. pause it anyway, to go to work for, for the for this work study Organization, right?
1: Well, he is also inspiring because he had, as you say, this very good career ahead of him. But uh, for, I suppose, patriotic reasons, he goes to France. But I'm sure he learned more from working with the workers than he would have done if he'd stayed in the library, starting with his PhD. And I think the workers changed these intellectuals because Chinese intellectuals traditionally never met workers or farmers, they lived in a very isolated world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and they were transformed by meeting these people.
2: A kind of an exciting, uh, strange social experiment. And they, they, this whole thing is, must have been, for them as Chinese, a, an amazing sort of opportunity. But it, it's so, so, so strange. We sort of give uh, Ai Weiwei all this credit for having this art project where he sent how many uh, uh, Chinese uh, workers to Germany, to some town in Germany? Do you remember You know what I'm talking about? I, I'm not familiar with this. You don't know this? No. Oh, it's uh, he, Ai Weiwei did a conceptual art project called I can't remember the name of it right now. I'm not an Ai Weiwei expert, but called Fairy Tale or something. And he paid for uh, something like I don't know how many hundred just migrant workers or something from somewhere to go to this city in Germany, and he he you know got their visas and everything and had these people living there as a sort of a conceptual art project. And I thought of that as I was reading the book a little bit and thought. You know, I wonder if you realize that, that it already had been done and it was much more interesting <laughs> during World War I to do it. Well, we must mention in this context uh, another
1: intellectual called James Yen. Absolutely. And he oh, yeah. was even more inspiring because the, the workers really changed his life. I mean, after working with them, doing much what Mr. Lee did, he decided not to become a diplomat or a businessman or a banker, which he could easily have done, but he did, decided to, to do rural education. Mm-hmm. So he came back to China and he started to set up uh, uh, reading schools all over China. And then after 49, uh, you know, he left. But he continued the work and did it in other countries. So he, he spoke of them in almost, I can say, religious terms. He said, um, I learned more from them than they learned from me. And I learned that the only difference between them and me is that I had the chance. Right. I mean, they are as equal to me but just i due to my family and my birth i had a chance that they didn't have mm-hmm.
0: i mean it also must have been very encouraging for these people i mean you, you cite a lot of of literacy statistics before mm. and after um the numbers of newspapers that were being read that's that's marvelous i mean they they really did um, in in a, a a few short years these are contract periods of 3 5 years so right? they they were able to learned to read and write in yes. quite large numbers. Right? Um, uh, Went back to their villages, changed men, absolutely.
1: Um, but, I, I mean, I, 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 I think we have to say the number of people doing this was not very many. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, my grandfather and the other missionaries, they assisted the men as much as they could. They wrote letters for them. They provided some sort of spiritual counseling for them. Uh, they put on shows for them. But... I think the number like Mr. Li or James Yen or Lin Yutang uh, who engaged as deeply with them was not so many. So uh, the number of men who benefited from them would, not, would be nowhere near the total. Mm-hmm.
2: You keep mentioning your grandfather. Maybe some listeners might be curious about who you're talking about and, and his history. Do you think? Yeah, for absolutely. For a few minutes, please, maybe? Because please it, is, it about, is interesting. Tell his story. Yeah.
1: Well, he, he went to Liaoning in 1897, uh, and he set up a church in uh, Farku in 100 kilometers north of Shenyang. So he and other missionaries were were, were summoned to
0: France to help. He was an Irishman, right? So was he an Ulsterman? Yeah, he's from Northern Ireland. Okay, so he's a, he's a Protestant then. Yes. Okay. And so for
1: them... Uh, Mr. Li saw an opportunity to educate and reform the Chinese workers. For grandfather, it was the chance to evangelize. Because he saw them as uh, they're not with their families, they're not in their familiar environment, they're rather at a loss. Mm -hmm. They're in this very traumatic Uh situation in a world they don't really understand. They're under danger. So uh, in this situation, they are very happy to hear a preacher speak to them. Perhaps if they were at home in their village, they they wouldn't have time for that. So uh, my grandfather and the other missionaries looked at them <laughs> rather in this in this light. But also as a as a pastoral work, for instance, funerals: who is to conduct the funerals? Ah. Who is to visit the Chinese who are sick in the hospital? Hmm. Who are to visit the Chinese who lost their mind? I'm afraid some of them lost their mind, so mm-hmm. they also needed to be visited. So. He also did that.
2: And they had uh, hospitals dedicated to the Chinese workers, right? Or at least uh,
1: Well, the British uh, did a very good job in this respect. They built the largest Chinese hospital in the world in northern France. All the major staff would be Chinese-speaking. So the doctors would be uh, mostly foreigners, but some Chinese. And the nurses would be Chinese. And the quality of care is the same as in hospitals for the British soldiers. So it's quite ironic that this, the largest Chinese hospital in the world is in France <laughs> and not in China.
0: Oh my God. Um, let's talk a little bit about what effect uh, this all ended up having. Uh, China entered, this, uh, entered into this uh, with the, the idea that it would put them in a better position when the war finally came to an end. And after it did finally end in 1918 and the Versailles conference kicked off, China was, of course, woefully disappointed. I mean, they felt completely betrayed uh, for all the noble talk about Wilson's 14 points. Uh, They felt like they had been completely sold down the river uh, and that that, um, they had had, uh, bled for nothing. Can you talk a little bit about what happened at Versailles?
1: Well, Uh, the Versailles terms were decided by three countries, Britain, France, and United States. And as you mentioned, President Wilson uh, announced these very uh, idealistic objectives for the war. But when it came down to it, the three countries wanted their own strategic objectives. They were not interested in bringing justice or equality to colonies or, or a country like China. So... Um, The first question was, what do we do with the German concession in Shandong? Do we uh, give it to China or do we leave the Japanese there? So, of course, justice says you give it to China because China fought on the side of the Allies. But Japan didn't send soldiers to the war, but they sent battleships. Mm -hmm. And these battleships worked in the Mediterranean. And they saved a lot of uh, Allied people who were sunk by the the German U-boats. And one Japanese destroyer was sunk by the the Germans. So in military terms, Japan contributed more than China. Mm -hmm. But in a wider sense, as you say, the Chinese contributed much more than the Japanese. But at Versailles, the British and the French said, "We, we, we, we want to keep Japan on our side. So in the balance between them, we favor Japan. And we should also say that the Chinese government of the time was very much in debt, and it, it had made agreements with Japan, which Good. the workers didn't know about. In fact, the Chinese public didn't know about. In fact, even the diplomats, the Chinese diplomats of Versailles didn't know about.
0: So we're talking about, so in 1916, Yuan Shikai is dead, mm-hmm. and he's essentially succeeded by Duan Qirui. Here. And so it's the Wanchure government that makes these concessions. Yes.
1: And uh, you know, the Chinese government needs money. And Japan has money. And they give, some, they give rights to Japan in, in Shandong. So there was a legal basis for giving Shandong to Japan. But in, in terms, as you say, of natural justice or the contribution to the war, it should have been given to China. Mm. And another thing we must remember is if we're giving the Japanese concession to China, well, how about the British concession? Or well, the French concession? Mm. Or the American concession? Why, why should the, the foreigners keep those? So there was also a sense that the, 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 the China is a subject country. And mm. so um, then the question of the box indemnity um, it, it is the same. I mean, justice would say that they should reduce the indemnity, reduce the interest rate, or abolish it. Mm-hmm. I mean, give China
2: some credit for what it had done, mm. but they didn't do anything. At least the Americans did pump some of that money back into China. They later, actually, later. yeah, they, they yeah, didn't. They, build, they, they
0: took the entirety of the boxer indemnity. Basically, and after that, right, right. So, uh, and, and
2: the result, we have like, Peking Union Medi-
0: Hospital. Yeah, right. Medical mm-hmm. College, right. right.
1: So, I, I mean, I, I want to give you this very good quote, which is by um, Kang Youwei. Mm-hmm. And this was in 1917, when China was deciding whether or not to enter the war officially. Mm-hmm. And Kang said, don't enter it because... You'll get, well, you'll get nothing. You will be tricked by the, 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 the winners. But he was overruled. So his quote in 1917 was, there is no such thing as an army of righteousness which will come to the assistance of weak nations.
0: Wow. How yeah. wow.
1: And, and that, wow. I think, is the best summary of, to answer your question that hmm. uh, yeah, in the end, China got nothing for its participation. What's one of the
0: great historical what ifs? I mean, if that, if the, the betrayal at Versailles hadn't happened, mm-hmm. there wouldn't have been a May 4th movement. If there hadn't been, been a, may a May 4th movement, there, there probably may not have been a, been a Communist, Communist Party. Party. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. r- really very, very interesting. But speaking of the Communist Party, um, in the aftermath, of course, um, now there's, there's a fairly established community of Chinese in this work-study program in, in France, and two very big luminaries of the Chinese Communist Party end up there. Uh, Zhou Enlai. Zhou Enlai, of course, and, 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 and Deng, Deng Xiaoping. What, what did France do to these two?
1: Well, uh, Britain shipped back every every one of its soldiers, right. uh, of its workers, but France gave them the choice. So 3,000 remained in uh, France, so that is the start of the Chinese community in in, in Paris. So I think Deng Xiaoping and, and Zhou Enlai were greatly influenced by their time in, in France. They saw a industrialized, capital, capital uh, capitalist country. Mm-hmm. They saw a society that was very divided between rich and poor. Um, they saw the prejudice of Europeans against Chinese. I mean, they saw many things which cr- helped create the way they thought it in the future, um, but for my book of course it would be nice if some of the workers had become leaders of the communist party (laughs) and you could have a kind of a link between the clc and the history that happened afterwards but i'm afraid that's that's not the case
0: yeah i mean it's actually sort of sad how how very little impact they end up having uh in in their own communities i mean we have these people like james yen of course uh who who are very much changed by it and then Mm -hmm go on to do quite a bit of changing in china themselves but the workers themselves the effect seems to uh, it didn't pollinate some uh, a, a new sort of species of homo cynicus in homo
2: <laughs> cynicus
1: well, what, what, what Zhong Yen discovered when he, he did his research is that these people went back and they went back to a very conservative, traditional, rural society in Shandong. They didn't go to Sh- Shanghai or Guangzhou or city. They went to a rural society, very, very conservative, where the individual had very little say. And they were young men. So, in, in the traditional Chinese family, they were at the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. Now, they had more money than the other members, but they were expected to share it. With, uh, with the other members. So they didn't set up, well, a, a few set up schools or factories, but mostly the money was distributed. Away,
0: distributed, gambled away, smoked, or drunk yes. away. Right.
1: And then <laughs> many, of course, were traumatized by yeah. what had happened to them.
0: What we'd now call, yeah. PTSD.
1: And so they were not able to, to, to resume a normal life. And uh, like my own father, he was in World War II. I mean, they didn't speak about what had happened to them. Um, so, uh, yes, it's very sad that, that such a powerful experience didn't have a good outcome.
0: The book is called The Chinese Labour Corps uh, by Mark O'Neill, and I highly recommend any of you pick it up. Uh, it's, it's a very quick read. It's only about 130 pages long, and it's a very, very enjoyable book. I, uh, I, I, I think it's an unexplored bit of China that uh, I encourage you all to uh to 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 take a look at um sorry we'll, can, we'll, can i we'll, just say sure, one more absolutely. thing uh,
1: there's going to be another book about the chinese workers who went to russia oh really and more than two hundred thousand went to russia to fight on the eastern front uh, w- uh no well they weren't supposed not to, to fight but not to fight but some of them joined like in, the red
2: bolshevik army right
1: like mm-hmm. in 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 europe many of them ended up <laughs> fight not fighting but on the eastern front but their story is just as dramatic so let me give you the title of it, From the Tsar's Railway to the Red Army, The Experience of Chinese Laborers in Russia During the First World War and Bolshevik Revolution. So th- this is a, a book of similar length, also published by
0: Penguin, available on Kindle
1: first. Not out yet, but please look out for it in
0: Absolutely. one or two yeah, months' time. We sure will. Um, and that takes us to our recommendations. And, and let's start with one that is related to our, our subject today uh, by our guest, Mark O'Neill you want me to talk a little bit about Well, Well, um, it's not really much to do with the Chinese laborers, but, but
1: so I recently read a wonderful book about Robert Hart, who was uh, a, also from Ulster and went to the same school as my grandfather and was the head of the Chinese imperial customs for more than 40 years. And uh, uh, I'm afraid I kept comparing him with <coughs> grandfather because they – from the same school. They were similar in personalities. They spent their whole life in China. Uh, Robert Hart is much more famous and made a great contribution to China. Um, But this was written by a Chinese scholar, and uh, one of the central characters is his Chinese wife, Hmm. with whom he had three children. He was
0: Married before, though, is that right? Well,
1: uh, officially, he's not, she wasn't the wife. Uh. I mean, she, what's the term? I mean, Concubine? Uh, mistress? <laughs> mistress? Yes. Ernie. Um, <laughs> Arnai <laughs> <R and I. laughs> yes. Well, But then later... They didn't have that term back then. Uh, I know. As he was going up in his career, of course, he had to have a white wife. So he goes back to Ulster. He's introduced to a lady. They get married. She comes to Beijing. She also has children. But she doesn't like Beijing because of the... <laughs> sandstorms, <laughs> the heat in the summer, I mean, you know the story. And so she went, she went home. So the, the last years of his life, he lived in this enormous house in Beijing, as it befits the head of the customs, and there was nobody in it except for him and his servants. And he pined for this Chinese lady. But because of the, the, the conventions of the time, uh, they mm-hmm. couldn't be united. And because it's a Chinese scholar writing this book, He's writing it very much through the eye of this lady. Has it been
0: translated in English? Yes, yes, okay, yes. And,
1: and the title of it, do you have handy? I think it's Robert Hart's a biography, I think. I'm sorry. Okay.
2: Oh. Anyway, what's Sounds your recommendation? Yeah. Uh, so, Kaiser, I know you're going to be interviewing Jonathan Finby. I am. Soon. Next week. And it, it just, I didn't know that until the last podcast, but I had actually been reading his two, two of his books. So I thought I would recommend him to the audience. Very good. And why do I keep saying audience? It's like listeners, right? Oh, sure. Uh, w- the latest one is, Will China Dominate the 21st Century? Which is what, I'm going to be what be you're going to be talking about. about. Which, is not, it, it, which is not just a rehash of the uh, Martin Jake uh, when China rules the world or anything like that. But it's it's interesting. Or a rejoinder to it. For, or a rejoinder to it. And then the other book, which is, uh, both of these books are good, I think. It, it's called Tiger Head Snake Tales, right. which is the translation of the Chinese expression, hutou uh, shouei, right? Um, both books are, are very interesting. Uh, they're filled with statistics, which I often think modern China, especially the problems that China is having, you can almost tell the whole story with just raw statistics, you know, because it has to do with large numbers, of population, and these books do that. I mean, they talk about the, you know, the, the sheer number of people, uh, you know, cigarette smokers, or people learning English, or people pl- trying to learn the piano, and they're and they're they're more than most major world countries. So, so it's a great. They're both good books to get you a statistical intuition for modern so, China.
0: I've been I've been reading Fabi's latest book uh, in anticipation of interviewing him, and. I mean, really? Do we do? Does does anyone think that that China is going to dominate the 21st century? I mean, is it a commonplace assumption on the part of anyone except for the sort of extreme declinists in America—the same people who who already believe that the Chinese economy is more powerful than America? Anyway, I—but I, I you don't know how
2: to sell books, see? Right, I, I don't. That's why I'm not <laughs> in that business.
0: But I, I will—I will proffer argument. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, speaking of reading, I, I, um, I'm an avid reader. I think we all, um, everyone who listens to this podcast is probably also uh, a, a real devourer of text. Uh, this morning, I, I saw on Facebook that, uh, that uh, um, a fellow by the name of Lorenzo Thioni, who's a, a, a brainiac, a techie friend of my younger brother's, had posted something about a new app uh, that's called Spritz. It's not out yet, but there was there was uh, a little sample of it, and what it does is it streams words that you want at a time, and it it balances them so that there's there's, there's the focal point of every word. Uh, at which you know your eye should rest comfortably. So that, uh, when you're reading, your eyes don't need to actually dart around a page. They don't need to, to scan back and forth. They don't need they don't have sort of peripheral information being taken in. You just have white space around a single word with a red one of its letters rendered in red, so that you keep your eye focused there. And I find you know in the, the sample that they gave that you could read very comfortably at, at speeds of 500 or more words a minute. Uh, and then. I I, somebody posted after I put put that up a link to a a hacker um, by I think his name is Rich Jones, who had created and yet this within 15 minutes of hearing about this, he he decided to make an open source version of this uh, (laughs) called Openspritz, which he he says um, it's a free speed reading bookmarklet. So all you need to do is go to that website, uh, which we will have. Uh, on it, you can you can actually just just do a search for OpenSpritz S P R I T Z, and you'll find it. Um, and uh, you'll you'll be able to just just drag and drop a little button into your bookmark uh, toolbar. When you're on an, uh, a, a, a you know a long form uh, website, say Aeon, which I've been reading quite a bit on, uh, you just click on uh, OpenSpritz this, and you click on the, the the number of words per second up to like a thousand plus words per second. Yeah. I'm not per second well per minute. And it'll just kick in. It'll start, it'll extract the actual article itself on some, you'll have to actually select the text that you want it to, to, to present to you. And you can just sit there and read. It's like, it's a, 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 a very easy experience. It's, it's a, a bit like watching television or listening to music. It's, you sort of sit back and, um, I find I can comfortably read at 6 or 700 words a, mm-hmm. a, a minute now uh which is much faster than the maybe 150 200 that I would read normally.
2: Yeah, that's great. I just tried it. It's just, it's, it's pretty amazing how fast you can read when your eyes don't have to dart back and p- right. forth across the page. Yeah.
0: When the app actually comes out, um it'll be, you know, you'll be able to read uh ebooks, you know, Kindle or or or, or um or iBooks or all sorts of other different formats, PDFs.
2: I, I can't imagine that I'll want to read in any other way. This may be one of the more revolutionary yeah, things. I, I've got to end with a joke, now that you say that. It's a Woody Allen joke. He said, he "said I, I took a course in speed reading. It's great. The other day I read War and Peace in three minutes. It's about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Attention speed. <pretty> <laughs> Very good.
0: Well, on that, on behalf of Jeremy, I... I see you next week David thanks for coming yeah my pleasure thank you very much for inviting me Mark thank you so much for coming it's been a delight and uh, we look forward to talking to you about your future literary endeavors take care Bye -bye. bye bye